Our Bible reading this morning comes from uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 uh, through to verse 10 of uh, chapter 3. Is that too high? Thank you. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he may take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who has lived in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not be led astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed, seed remains in him. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love his brother and sister. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. Um, uh, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, just how much children can resemble their parents, uh, resemble their mannerisms, resemble the way that they look uh, and their personalities. Uh, just on the screen here will come up a, a photo. Maybe. <laughs> it's on the desktop if you need to click it. Is it? Oh, there it is. There's me and my father. This is uh, the day of my, my brother's wedding. Um, now, there's one distinguishing feature that, that sets aside male pages in my family. Um, I'm not sure if you can see it, so I'll, I'll give you a little bit of help. If you just click to the next slide. That. All right. It's what we call the page eyebrow. Every male page in my family shares this common feature. Some of us try to tame this beast, but nonetheless, everyone who was born, every male who was born into the Page family shares this one common feature, the Page eyebrow, which we can now get off the screen if you like. 
That's our family resemblance for the males in our family. Uh, but it's much more than looks, isn't it, family resemblance? Uh, there's personality, there's interests, there's uh, even a way of thinking which resembles our parents. Growing up in your house, you may have heard uh, the phrase a fair bit, uh, you're just like your father, or you're just like your mother. Or for me at school, uh, my older brother, it was, Jack, you're just like your brother. In this passage this morning, we are reminded of our family resemblance as children of God. We hear that for those who remain in Christ, that is what we're called, children of God. And that if we are part of his family, well, we should live like we are part of his family. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 to 27, John told us to remain in Christ, meaning not to be swayed by anyone who tries to tell us that Jesus isn't who he says he is. He tells us that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who can bring us to relationship with our Father in heaven, because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross in our place. Jesus died the death that we deserve so that we can have a relationship with God. So John wants us to remain in Christ. He writes, So now, in verse 28, So now, little children, remain in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. John tells us to remain in Christ so that when Jesus returns, we can have confidence to stand before him, knowing that we are his. Jesus' return uh, is a reality here that John really wants us to grasp this morning. The, the call is clear all throughout this book, remain in Christ. Because those who remain in Christ are children of God. And it is this identity as children of God which shapes our family practice or how we live as his children. And we see this in verse 29. Uh, John writes, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Um, it's important to note that it's not everyone who does what is right will be born of him. It's everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See, identity shapes practice. See, John's intention this morning, and this is important, is not for us to feel overwhelmed with guilt or to feel worthless because we get things wrong. See, it's actually the opposite. John wants us to understand the severity of sin, but he wants those who trust in Jesus to feel secure in our identity as children of God. Remember, this is a letter of great assurance to the church that John is writing to. We bear the family resemblance. And God wants this identity to shape how we live. Family identity shapes family practice. Now, on your handout, you see those are the two uh, points. First point, family identity. Um, I don't know how you feel about your relationship with God today, where you stand with God. But here John draws out one characteristic which he wants all of us to understand about God. And it's just like the honey. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. John wants us to understand the enormity of God's love for us. 
See what great love the Father has lavished on us. It's not see what great expectation. It's not see what great judgment. It's not see what a great task we must do to please this God. It's see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called his children. And that is what we are. Our Father is not a harsh, domineering Father. He is a Father who has none of the shortcomings of fathers here on earth. He is our perfect Father who loves us. Warts and all, whatever we bring to the table, He loves us. He is a Father who wants close, loving relationship with His children. Now, I'm largely stealing this story from someone else. It's a disclaimer, uh, but I can't remember who it is. So if it's you, thank you for this excellent example. Uh, but I want you to, to picture this with me. Imagine this. Um, there was a man who was raised in a loving family uh, with a mother and a father who absolutely adored him. He was a really happy child growing up. He knew the love of his family. But when his teen years hit, uh, something kind of changed. He started to, to distance himself from his family, his his parents really just put it down to the fact that he was you know, a teenager. They just thought it was just maybe a phase he was going through. Um, but as the years went by, this continued to happen and it actually got worse. They realised that something was, was wrong. This became apparent when the then man's um, father discovered that his son uh, had an addiction to drugs. He tried everything uh, to help him to, to get rid of this addiction, but it just kept getting worse. Um, now that this, this issue, this addiction was out in the open, uh, the son began treating his parents terribly. He, he was verbally abusive when they tried to talk to him. He would even threaten violence and he continued to shut them out of his life. And then the parents discovered the son had been stealing from them in order to pay for this addiction. Still, they wanted to help him. Then one day the son just upped and left his family they had no idea where he had gone. The son was on the streets for a number of years, all while his parents continued to search for him until eventually he took it too far. He was caught trying to rob a convenience store to get money to fuel this addiction. He was sent to jail. Now, while the son was in jail, he had time to think about his life and he felt terrible. The things he'd done, the people he'd hurt, his own father and mother, most of all. He had nothing and no one left. And he refused any visits in jail. He was just miserable, racked with guilt. Then one day, some years later, he realised that he would be released soon. The only place he could think that he could maybe go back to was to his mum and dad. He'd fought his addiction in jail. That had been going pretty well. He still had a few issues. But after all he'd done to them, would his parents want anything to do with him? He wrote them a letter one day saying that he would be released soon and that he was sorry for all he'd done to them, that he wanted to come home, but that he understood if they didn't want anything to do with him. He wrote to them and said, you don't need to say anything. I'll walk by the house. I'll, just, I'll look up at the top window where my bedroom was if... If you've placed a white sheet over that window, I'll, I'll know that I'm welcome, that I can come knock on the door. If not, I'll know that I should just keep on walking. Well, the day arrived when he was released from jail, and the man began walking toward his old home. 
His mind filled with doubt and fear that his parents wouldn't want anything from him or anything to do with him after how he'd treated them. He turned onto his street. He kept walking past familiar neighbourhood houses, trees, playgrounds until eventually he was in front of his own home. And he looked up. And he saw that there was no white sheet in his bedroom window. Instead, what he found was that his parents had wrapped up the whole entire house in the cleanest, whitest sheets that they had available. So they would do anything to have him there with them. They loved him and they wanted him to know it. Now, picture us. People who God cherished and loved, but who chose to reject God. He chose to reject his love and decided to be his enemies instead of his children. That is what we were. And there was nothing we could ever do to set that right. The jail sentence was set. But see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. God didn't leave us to face that sentence. Even while we hated him and rejected him, God showed up here on earth. He came down into his creation to fix this problem. Jesus was born. And when he was a man, he had nails driven through his hands and his feet on a cross, and he died, taking the punishment we deserve onto his own shoulders. He served our jail sentence so that any who put their trust in him and accept what he's done for them might have a restored relationship with God our Father. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Why can those who trust in Jesus call themselves children of God? It's not because they earn the right. It's not because they prove their worth. Why can those who trust in Jesus call themselves children of God? It's because of the Father's unimaginably great love for us. A God who doesn't just put a single sheet in a window for us or pour a little drop of honey onto a piece of bread, but wraps that house up over and over and over with white sheets, just like the parents in that story, saying, I love you, I want you with me, come to me. This is a love that we can intimately know within us because this is an active love which God has shown us in entering into his creation of choosing to die in our place so that we could have this relationship with him and be called his children. If you're here today and you've put your trust in Jesus, you are a child of God. You're not just an acquaintance, you're not just a friend, you're you're a child of God. When you wake up in the morning, uh, tomorrow morning, go look in the mirror, say to yourself, first thing, see what great love the Father has lavished on me that I should be called a child of God and that is what I am. That is your identity. That is who you are. But if you're here today and maybe you haven't taken that step yet of putting your trust in Jesus, Well, that is the invitation that he holds out to you. He wants you to accept his love and what he has to offer to you. Uh, Now, there are a couple of things that John wants us to understand about being a child of God. Um, The first is that 
are found in, in 3 verse 1 as well. The first is that as the world did not recognize Jesus, it does not recognize us. He says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So being called a child of God isn't something that is just in name. Okay, we really are his children. A consequence being that the world, meaning a world that disassociates itself from God, also disassociates itself from us. See, we now bear a different family resemblance to the world. We don't belong in the world's family, we belong in God's family. One which is different to the world and which the world doesn't recognise in its continued rejection of God. It's the first thing. The second is that children of God do really bear that family resemblance of Jesus. He writes, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John is making a really important observation here. While, while those who trust in Jesus are children of God now, today, right here, there is still a transformation yet to take place. See, we will one day bear the full resemblance or full likeness of Jesus after his return, meaning that one day God will bring to fullness and completion the identity that we now have, that we enjoy today as God's children. See, we will be like Christ. Now, what this looks like is not 100% clear. John himself says that. But what we can understand of this full resemblance and likeness of Jesus is that we will no longer feel that pull of sin that first separated us from God. That we will no longer be sinful because the completed work of Christ means that sin has been completely done away with once and for all. It will not exist in us then as God's family. It can't. Because Jesus has no sin. And because we'll be just like him, we'll have no sin. This becomes clear in the next few verses. But what John is writing about in verse 2 and throughout the rest of this passage is that while we are children of God now, today, here, God hasn't yet finished his work in us. Now, what I mean by this is that while God sees us as pure and blameless and perfect through his son Jesus, we still struggle with sin today. We still struggle with sin today. It's that idea of the now and the not yet. See, we live now, here in this present time, with our hopes set on a future reality that is yet to come to pass. See, our hope is set on Jesus and his return. But Jesus hasn't returned yet. We have not yet been transformed fully into his likeness. We are still being made into his likeness. And what that means is continuing in the fight against sin in our lives as we live in light of our new identity as children of God. See, our family identity shapes our family practice. That's point two on your outline. If you have your Bibles in front of you, uh, please look at uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 with me. John writes, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This verse is one of the most important verses to remember here in 1 John. It's important to remember because what John is telling us here is that it is not what we do that makes us pure, it's what Jesus has done. 
And this idea of purity is an Old Testament idea which has to do with preparation for being in God's presence. See, as God is pure and free from the stain of sin, any who stand in his presence must also be pure and free from that stain of sin. Jesus is the one who purifies us so that we can approach God in this way, with confidence, so that we can stand in his presence. We can be with our creator, with our father. John wants to make clear uh, that sin is the most abominable thing in God's sight. Okay, But here we have the reminder that sin no longer separates us from God because of Jesus. And that's something we need to remember. We need to always keep coming back to that. John spends the next six verses writing about this, writing about how to distinguish then who is a child of God and who isn't. And it's a pretty big contrast. The contrast is between who is a child of God and verse 10, uh, what he writes is who is a child of the devil. See, verse 10 really brings the distinction about. Well, what John is saying here is that you can't be with God if you are against God. You can't be with God if you are against God. You can't have a foot in both camps, is what John is saying. And he brings this about, saying this, by using a series of contrasts and with some very extreme statements that, at first glance, seem to completely contradict what John has previously written about sin and about what makes relationship with God possible. But John's main point in these verses is that you can't be with God if you are against God. You can't be with God if you're against God. That's an idea that's come up before in 1 John, isn't it? That's images of light and darkness. And John returns to it here. He makes this point in verses 4 to 6 and in verses 8 to 9 as well. Firstly, verses 4 to 6, he writes, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So John's logic here is, it seems fairly straightforward. So he says in verse 4 that sin is lawlessness, meaning complete total opposition to God. In verse 5, that Jesus appeared to take away sin and that he himself has no sin. Therefore, verse 6, no one who remains in him keeps on sinning. And there's a similar logic in verses 8 to 9. He writes, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who was born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. It's a similar logic. First part of verse 8, sin is of the devil. Second part of verse 8. Well, Jesus appeared to destroy the work of the devil. Therefore, verse 9, no one who was born of God will continue to sin. See, these verses and what John is highlighting is how bad sin is. A sin or the rejection of God and acceptance of other things in his place is so bad, Jesus had to die. He had to die to deal with the consequences for that sin in our lives. It's the whole reason why he came. It makes sense then that for those who bear the family resemblance of Christ, 
shouldn't want to sin, shouldn't want to live lives that reject God. But there seems to be a problem here, doesn't it? There's the elephant in the room. Is John really saying that if you are a child of God, that you will never sin? Is John saying that if you're a child of God, that you will never sin? Well, no, he can't be. He can't be because it's already written in chapter 1 verse 8 that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, we all sin. We all reject God in pursuit of other things. We all make other gods and worship what we shouldn't. But through Jesus, we have forgiveness. Through Jesus, we can call ourselves God's children. Jesus deals with that sin in our lives. Jesus and Jesus alone can do that. So what could John be saying in chapter 3? What I think John is talking about here is habitual sin or a disposition of sin, maybe more helpfully, a settled state of rebellion against God and rejection of him. That's what it means by making a practice of sin, the idea of, of getting better and better at sin as opposed to practicing righteousness, getting better and better at rejecting sin and saying yes to God. Now, John is responding to the fact that a group of people had left the church there and were trying to deceive others about God and about how they should live. John is is setting that group apart because of how they have rejected God. This is a group of people who had firstly tried to lead the church away from God theologically, and now they're trying to lead them away from God morally as well. See, these people had a disposition of sin and a settled state of rebellion against God. They denied Jesus and they wanted to lead people away from him. Now, Jesus doesn't want the church he is writing to to be influenced by these people. He says so in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now, John is not trying to single out people who know their sin. He's not singling out people who feel their sin keenly, people who hate it and don't want it. John's purpose is not to make people feel needlessly guilty. It's actually the opposite of the first half of the passage. John's pointed to the incredible reality that for those who trust in Jesus... We are children of God. He's pointed us to the fact that the Father has lavished his love on us. What I think is happening is is this. Um, Do you know when when you're falling asleep uh, and your head slowly begins kind of falling forward, you know, you get kind of the head wobbles and then suddenly you kind of, and you wake up, you get that real sudden shock. Um. There might be some medical practitioners here who can tell me that this is wrong, but apparently that's called a hypnic jerk. A hypnic jerk. Well, here, John is wanting us to have the hypnic jerk of all hypnic jerks. He wants us to wake up, to have that shock, to realise how bad sin is, and to not let anyone deceive us into thinking that it doesn't matter in the life of a follower of Jesus. Now, what could this look like today, though? It's very different here 
to what they were facing back then of having a set group of people who were trying to lead them away from Jesus? What could that look like for us today? Well, we live in a really unique time in history where we have money, we have safety, good health care, security. So what do we really have to worry about? I mean, it's easy for us uh, to become complacent when we think about how comfortable we are in Australia. It's easy for us to pursue those things that make us comfortable today and to treat them the way we should treat God, to treat them as ultimate things. So it would be easy uh, to be distracted by the many good things that we have at our disposal, the things that we have around us, things that could easily become idols and replace God in our lives. There's things like money, security, family, sex, power, all of it. But we need to remember Jesus is coming back. When he returns... Will you have confidence to face him? We don't live for things today. Living for money, even living just for family or living for sex or career, living for those things means not living for God. It means ultimately rejecting God. Now, those things are really good things. They're really good things. But when we make them the ultimate things in our lives, we are saying to God, we don't really need you. All I need is this thing that's not you. When it should be our relationship with God that actually affects how we view those things, that we recognise that they cannot fulfil us, that only God can, that they are good things to be used and cared for and cherished as God intended them to be. To treat those things how we should treat God, though, is sin. And sin is serious. We can never become complacent about it. If our identity is as children of God, then our practice should be to seek to live as children of God who make a practice of living in right relationship with God and not against him. And we will get it wrong. We will get it wrong. But it's that idea of uh, an athlete training to um, be able to kick a ball or hit a ball better, to jump higher, to run or swim faster... As we practice saying no to sin, we will slowly become better at saying no to sin and yes to God. And John tells us that we actually have help in this. It's what John means when he writes in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. God's seed. It's God himself, the Holy Spirit, entering into you transforming you to become more and more like Jesus, helping you to practice right living for God and to recognise when you're not doing that, guiding us to God. And even though we do get it wrong sometimes, we can know with confidence that he forgives us. We can look up again and again at that house just wrapped up in clean white sheets, knowing that the Father's great love is ours. He's with you and he will not let you go. So then how do we let our identity shape our family practice as a church then? How do we let our family identity shape our family practice as a church? Um, Well, firstly, I think it's by not letting sin drive you away from God, but responding to sin by running to God. By not letting sin drive you away from God, but responding to it by running to him. 
That's how God wants us to respond to sin. See, we can't deal with sin in our lives without his help. And it doesn't matter how many times you need to do it, respond to the sin in your life by running into the Father's open arms, by saying sorry to God for rejecting him and trusting in the forgiveness he already offered to you through his Son. Remember how great the love is that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called God's children. He wants us with him and he will help us to remain in Christ. Uh, Secondly, keep helping each other to fight that battle against sin and don't let anyone be deceived by it. Now what I mean by this is um, it's not that that you walk around and, and point your finger at people and try to catch them out when they're doing the wrong thing. That's not it at all. That's not what John is saying. Rather that you look inwardly. That you recognise sin in your life. And that as you ask God for help with it, you repent of your sin. Maybe find a friend or two who you can confide in, who you can ask for help to get rid rid of that sin. It could be just finding someone that you trust to have a regular conversation with you. I have a number of friends who I do this with, and it's incredibly helpful to ask you how you are going with living for God and not for the world, and to pray with you and to be praying for you. Let's love one another by helping each other to say no to sin and yes to God. In loving our brother and sister is where John takes the next chunk of chapter 3, loving our brother and sister is where John continues to circle back to throughout this letter. So let's love one another by helping each other say no to sin. Now lastly, if, if you're here today and you have not put your trust in Jesus, well the invitation for you is to accept God's love for you. To realise that he wants you with him. That nothing in this world could satisfy or offer what only God can give to you. It's not by living a good life and and earning it. It's by accepting what God has done for you through his son. Putting your trust in him. If that's something you'd like to do or something you'd like to keep thinking about or questioning, well please do ask those questions. Ask it of someone here that you trust or come have a chat to me, to one of the staff. I promise you it's one of the most, what is the most important question you'll ever think through in your life. Remember, for all of us, it's our family identity that shapes our family practice. Hear John's call to remain in Christ, that those who trust in Jesus have this new identity of being God's children. And we are being shaped and transformed slowly into the image of Jesus. Let that shape how you live. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called a child of God. To know that he looks at us and he says, you are just like your brother. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your awesome love for us that you have shown to us through your Son Jesus that even though we were rejecting you, You still sent your son to die on the cross for our sins so that we might have life, so that we might have relationship with you. Please help all of us here today 
to live lives in response to this great love that you have shown us, recognising that we could, ever, we could never earn what you've given to us, Lord. But help us to live lives that bring honour to you in response to this amazing love that you have shown to us, Lord. Amen.